This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of 100 Words or Less, the podcast. I'm your host, Ray Arkins, and you are joining me on another week of insightful, exciting, informative conversations with people involved in independent music, whether they're playing in bands, working at record labels. Uh, actually, this is an, this idea just came to me. How about a person that's working at like a uh, pressing plant, you know, like vinyl? Like, do they actually like music or is it just a job? I don't know, but I, I think I want to get to the bottom of it. Anyways, I like how these divine waves of inspiration just kind of wash over me as I'm recording these intros. But anyways, the guest this week is a very old friend and not by age wise because we're the exact same age and I'm not old. OK, I'm only 36 years old. All right. I'm just, even though I'm getting closer to 40 and I guess that's the middle of your life or something. But I read a report this morning that it's like now people are projecting between 100 to 125 years of age. That's like, you know, there's a person that is born today that will live to 125 years old, which is wild. It's crazy. But anyways, I'm all over the place today, but I'm going to get on track. Here we are. The guest this week is Val Loper. He is a old friend of mine. Like I said, Uh, he plays in a band currently called Bare Hands, who are Uh, I want to say burning up the charts. I I don't want to say I'm going to say (laughs) they are doing extremely well within the sort of radio rock indie world. And uh, that band has been very successful for 10 plus years. And I mean, they have a huge management company. It's like the same company that manages Metallica. Basically, they're doing the damn thing. They're recording records. They're touring. They're playing in front of a lot of people. And uh, I'm just extremely extremely happy for him so i wanted to have val on my show and uh he also played in a band called in pieces which is why we know each other uh highly highly underrated melodic hardcore band i I was trying to think of another label for it so apologize if that (laughs) if that sounds like i was trying to like oh yeah melodic hardcore band like i was trying to look down on them because um no frankly that is uh, my style of music so Anyways, it's a uh, really, really good conversation, but uh, put, a, put a pin in that for a moment. Let's talk about some uh, some life musings, as I like to do in these uh, upfront intros, and then we'll uh, dive into the interview. So uh, we are sitting here going into my wife's final two weeks of chemotherapy, hopefully, and in early February, we go do some testing, and hopefully the reports come back positively, and they say that the cancer is... The, you're never cured of cancer. You're just in remission. Um, she technically won't be considered in remission for a good two years to come, but each test that she does that does not show that there's any cancer, obviously that's a good one. So that's what I'm, my fingers are crossed for that one. Then she does a surgery in February, and then hopefully by the end of March, she'll be starting to dial in, uh, you know, go back to work and kind of living a normal-ish life. So that's why I'm, I'm, I'm very, I'm happy that we were closing in on the end of chemotherapy because, dude, chemotherapy is brutal. It sucks. And uh, you don't want to watch anybody you care about going through that. So anyways, that's that's the personal update. And um, what else is there? I don't, I don't know. I don't think there's too much else going on, right? Oh, wait, no. The damn inauguration, right? <laughs> Holy shit. That was a... Uh, that was something else, right? So I know a lot of people uh, that are listening to the show are probably progressive-minded, left-wing, whatever you'd like to call yourself, but, you know, is not pleased at the current presidential, not only elect, but the person that is residing in the Oval Office as we speak. 
and um, it was uh, it was wild. And I was uh, on Friday, fortunately, not super super tapped into the inauguration. You know, kind of watching it from afar um, with this just sort of you know morbid curiosity. And then um, you know, then Saturday happened, and the rallying around. Not as not only the country, but the world in regards to an entire gender being like, hey, so how this all has played itself out? Uh, I don't support this, and uh, it sucks. And I just uh, it's it's amazing that that happened. But I I don't even know where our country is headed in regards to the divisiveness and how many people do not support this this. Uh, this vote and it's uh, it's wild to be sitting there where it's like you know wistful for the days of like oh man I, re- I remember George Bush and like yeah some people didn't like him but did they really have any thought in their head that something like this would happen where a you know reality show <laughs> producer was going to be voted into the president of the United States but um, anyways that's neither here nor there I just uh, I had to get that out of there because uh, holy moly that was a uh, a lot to take in over a couple of days and uh, fortunately I, I left feeling heartened because of the uh, the fact that I did not feel alone in my expressions for this and oh oh my gosh dogs are barking all right well that must mean I should move on so Val Loper like I said plays in bare hands incredible band and uh, I'm really uh, I'm just excited to share this conversation because uh, we really talked about uh, what it's like to be in a band for a very long time, which is exactly what he's done. So here's Val and I will talk to you after the jump. You're 100% one of those people where it's like, yeah, I, you put a gun to my head and I'd be like, I can't remember exactly the first time we met beyond the fact that I think, you know, it's when obviously Taken and In Pieces played uh, together, I think in Connecticut for the first time, if I'm not mistaken. Um, did you, do, you, like, do you have any recollections or, <laughs> or would I, we first ran across each other? I assume it would be with this day forward. Sure. Because I feel like that was like the, uh, the connecting bridge between our two bands. Or maybe curl up and die. I'm not sure, but um, yeah, I can't remember if it was in California or in Connecticut. There's a good chance it was either of those. But yeah, Connecticut sounds great. Let's say that. <laughs> totally. Well, it's funny because I think so many people that exist in this independent music scene for a long period of time, they just uh, you know those memories fade so far in the background because you're just like, oh yeah, I've known that person for like what 15 years? Like that's bizarre. Yeah, that's crazy. I actually never thought of it that way. I I, partially just because I have these conversations, you know, with people on a semi-regular basis, and I I just reflect on it all the time. Where I'm like, when, like, was it at this show or was it this time that we played together? But anyways, but the the point I'm trying to make is the I I so remember (laughs) you guys playing Hellfest 2001. I want to say you guys played Mm -hmm. that year, right? I think we played 2001, two, and three. Okay, I just remember 2001 was when. Um, you know, basically I just watched you guys and was thoroughly impressed. I had already, uh, Chris Logan from Goodfellow Records was already like, dude, you need to watch in pieces. They're such a good band. And I, you know, you guys hadn't necessarily made it out here from a word of mouth perspective. Um, and I just remember being like, oh my God, you guys are on to something. Like why, tell tell me this. I know this is a very open-ended question, but why were you guys so good? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I, I never, ever thought that I was so, I mean, I'm still kind of like that. I'm, I'm 
I'm never really happy with the way my band's playing. I always think that you can play better. So uh, I don't really have a good answer for you. Usually when I got off stage, I was pretty bummed because <laughs> like, I thought we were pretty loose and we made a lot of mistakes. Uh, we had tuning issues. We were not very pro, but I don't know. We like to have a good time, and I hope that came across. Right. So are you? did you find yourself being, or I guess are you a hard person on yourself, uh, I guess, critically with like the stuff that you create musically? Or is it one of those things where... I guess as you've got older, you've loosened that up. Um, I think as I've gotten older, I've gotten better. So, uh, that and the band I play in now has taken what we do a lot more seriously. So since we play better, I'm a happier person, but yeah, I think, I don't know. Uh, I don't think I've changed in that regard. I think I've made steps to try to become a better musician. So I don't feel, as critical at the end of the show because I, I knew I did the best job I could. Right. And that's a really good point because, yeah, obviously when you start to take stabs at creating songs and playing them live and doing all those things that you do as a band, you, you have no real idea what you're doing and you're just trying to <laughs> try to not fall apart and try to like not stop a song as you're playing it. Yeah. Yes. Very much so. Even though I've done that a couple times. <laughs> of course. Everybody has where it's just like, well, we can't save that song. Yep. <laughs> It did. It, I guess you know, in particular within pieces, a lot of people focused on the sort of musicality of it. Where you guys, you know, you knew how to play your instruments. I know, obviously, you were just referencing the fact that you didn't feel like you were able to play your instruments that well. But I guess on a basis of comparison, you know, a, a lot of our peers, while were talented in some respects, maybe didn't have a, a good grasp on their instrument. But you guys seem to come come at it from a little different angle. Um, did you like did you find yourself i guess preparing more and like practicing a ton um on sort of different styles of music or was it one of those things where uh as you started to explore music and playing in bands that your your taste got diversified well i think i i think i always viewed in pieces as kind of like an outsider or peripheral band in the hardcore scene because as much as we were all into hardcore you know i grew up listening to you know anything from like, you know, indie rock to ska to hip hop to emo, classic rock, prog, like, you know, everything. So I wasn't like the most, I feel like it's kind of a, a trap sometimes if you're like too much of the hardcore kid, because then you only listen to hardcore bands and then the music you write ends up sounding like hardcore bands. And that was never really where I came from. So it, like I picked, I cherry picked, you know, the hardcore bands that I liked and I tried to use those influences with other influences from other genres to try to diversify and, you know, round out our, our music. So, and also, yeah, I took pride in, um, in being technically proficient. Yeah. I practiced a lot, basically went home every day in high school and played in my parents' basement until they told me to stop. <laughs> <laughs> and what what were you attempting to play at that time? Ah, uh, man. Well, early on, like, uh, you know, starting off with, like, Dinosaur Jr., um, Black Flag, Bad Brains, um, what else? Rage Against the Machine, uh, Sebado, I'm trying to think, The Clash. Mm-hmm. It was all over the place. Yeah. How? Where did that because you listed just obviously a wide variety of artists. Uh, where was all that stuff kind of coming into your head from? Um, some kids at school, my neighbor, actually, I saw him wearing a dinosaur junior shirt, like, which was 
very cool and like the coolest dude I could uh, be neighbors with in the suburbs mm-hmm. in like the early nineties. So I saw that shirt. I saw, I heard of them on 120 minutes. So I got really into dinosaur junior. Um, my cousin is from Providence and he grew up with a lot of the Providence, like uh, noise rock kind of bands like six finger satellite and Airborne radar and so he was into like a lot of no wave and weirder indie stuff. So he would make me mixtapes and that's where, I mean, there's black flag on there, the fall joy division, pop group, like the frogs just all over the place. So he was another big, he was another big person for me. And then just some like, uh, friends of friends I had in high school, like their older brothers. I was always kind of like digging for music. So I don't, uh, it was a natural I was naturally uh, gravitating towards these people who I knew had a wider musical lexicon than myself. That's cool. I always find it interesting when you do get exposed to music that is more challenging than your stereotypical, you know, epitaph starter kit. You mentioned, you know, you mentioning Arab on radar and all that stuff was really, you know, I mean, that stuff is not easy to get into like when you're, you know, 14, 15, 16 years old, but you know, some of the, sometimes those bands kind of cut through where you're like, what is this? Like this, this makes no sense, but I'm interested in it. Yeah. Well, you know, because initially my idea of, of what punk rock was, was like, you know, anything from 77 style to like, you know, descendants and, and, uh, minor threat and stuff like that. So to hear something that sounded like, I guess it was, it was labeled as punk, but it was like, like a deconstructed version of that or like a kind of like an obtuse, uh, uh, mirror to that. I, I, I was really, I didn't get it at first, but I knew it was intriguing. And I kind of knew in the back of my head, as I get older, I would someday I would, I would, uh, I would get it. And then, yeah, like in my teens, I finally, my later teens, I finally started to get it. And then that music became super, super important to me. Yeah. That's really cool. I like that idea of, uh, planting the seed where you know yourself, you may not understand it, but then at some point it will grow into that understanding of like, Oh yes. Like that's what, you know, I'm pointing to my experience in regards to being on the West coast. A band like locust is exactly the same thing where they, they were doing, you know, they were ostensibly playing hardcore shows, except, you know, sticking out like a sore thumb, but they had Mm -hmm. the sort of the, the same language that you were operating in where it's like, okay, it's loud, it's aggressive, but these songs are 30 seconds and I, I don't even know where that sits in my head, but I know it's kind of crazy. But then, yeah, it, it kind of flourishes into something that, uh, you know, maybe you have a deeper appreciation than just like your, you know, stereotypical, you know, chug E chord band or whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's coming from a totally, I mean, it's coming from the same building blocks, but taking it to a completely different place. And I liked kind of the cerebral mind fuck that it is um i don't know it's just it was just really intriguing to me so i I still listen to a lot of music that's influenced by no wave and is maybe a little bit more dissonant than the average shit but i like that that's i don't know that's oddly emotive to me right right no it's really cool because that like you said, you can play catch up with a lot of that stuff. And then when you come, when you arrive at it, you enjoy it that much more. And then you take even deeper steps on understanding it, you know, because 
again, like some 17 year old kid, if you present the entire throbbing gristle catalog to them, they would, yes. they'd be like, I, wh- where do I begin? I, I have no idea. This is a briefcase full of music. It makes no sense. And so, so yeah. that, that, they were another huge one for me too, that I feel like I wanted to like them, uh, when I was younger and I just, and I, and I would try to listen to them and I couldn't, I couldn't really be honest with myself and say I didn't like it. And then in my twenties, like throbbing gristle became incredibly important to me. And, you know, now they're, you know, one of my favorite bands. Yeah, it's rad. The, uh, and, and so you mentioned earlier your experience being raised in a, uh, Connecticut suburb, correct? That's where you were born. Yes. Yep. Okay. And what, what's it, what town in particular? It's called Glastonbury. It's a suburb of Hartford, which is the capital. It's like, I grew up about 10 minutes away from downtown. Right. Normal ass, normal ass suburb, middle class, white as fuck, very boring. <laughs> did, did you, uh, were both your parents in the house and do you have brothers and sisters? Yeah. Uh, I, both my parents are together still. I was just there yesterday. It was my sister's wedding. Um, and yeah, I had a brother and a sister, both who were younger. Nice. So you were, you were first on the scene taking a, oh. a survey of the land. Yeah, I was, I'm breaking my parents in. Right. <laughs> so on on that note, were you uh, were you a kid that was uh, easy to get along with, or did you cause your parents a lot of uh, turmoil and strife, or how, how did that play itself out in the house? I think I was a uh, I was a pretty nice kid growing up, and then uh, like teenage years and punk rock happened, and I I apologized to my parents so many times in my early twenties. <laughs> like it's like just, you know, that five year period, I'm sorry for everything. <laughs> they were cool about it. And I was yeah, I was I was all about hanging out with my friends, but family was not super important to me at that time. I think that's just a natural reflex for teenagers. Like having two younger siblings, my brother's almost nine years younger than me. I basically just like beat the shit out of him and was a total dick. He told me that we were like we were hanging out a few years ago and he told me that he hated me till he was like 15. <laughs> That's brutal. Cause I, and Oh my God, man, it broke my heart because, um, my brother and sister and I are so, so close. I mean, have been for a really long time. And my brother, my brother and I are really, really similar and we play music together and he's made, uh, like music videos for, um, my solo stuff and he's he does graphic design for bare hands and like we're really we're really we're brothers we're and we're super super close so i that absolutely destroyed my heart to hear that right you're like that wasn't that wasn't my true intention but i didn't know any better at the time so yeah, no, i was just yeah i was a dick and i just wanted to you know go hang out with my friends and not have anything to do with my family right that it's since been a complete reversal and I have a very, very good relationship with my family. That's good. Well, at least you're able to swing it back because, you know, some people forget to do that <laughs> and then it just, yeah. then it lingers. Yeah. Now, luckily, luckily I wised up quickly and realized how lucky I was. And right. yeah, my, my relationship with my family is awesome. That's great. That's great. Uh, yeah. Did you, what was your trajectory as far as like school? Did you care about it or did you have aspirations to, you know, enter some type of profession based on your parents or where was your head at as you were going through high school? Um, I was basically just like living the status quo. I, I only had ambitions that were creative. I didn't think that the academic infrastructure of my high school was like giving me anything. I wasn't particularly 
engaged in, in my classes. It was more about hanging out and I felt like I was getting more from outside of school. Like, you know, whatever books I decided to read and whatever music I was getting into. I, when I decided to go to college, I went to college cause I didn't know what the fuck else to do. And I like to write. I liked English. So I went to school for that, but I don't know. It's, it wasn't really, I didn't graduate college. I actually dropped out of college to go on tour with in pieces when we got our first record deal. And so that seemed like a good idea. I was like, Oh, I'll just, I'll go, I'll take a little sabbatical and then, you know, figure it out when the touring cycle dies down. And then that was 15 years ago that right. <laughs> I haven't graduated. Right. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, it, it, it definitely is one of those things where you can't really put your finger on what it is that you want to do, but you just want to be attached to this thing that you're passionate about. You know, it's like, you know, cause I mean, obviously during that time, there was no real, roadmap for bands of our nature to you know make a living like yeah there's you know like i always put i've mentioned this a few times in the show before but really a a band like poison the well kind of changed the game for us Uh looking at a band that's like oh you can play something that is like heavy you know yeah you could be like oh hate breed and you know earth crisis it's like yeah but we didn't sound like those bands you know but yeah yeah, there's no roadmap to be like all right we're gonna be in a you know, punk and hardcore band with melodic tendencies and we're going to make a living out of this. That doesn't make sense. <laughs> yeah. I remember, I remember this quote from, from at the drive-in, like right after they released relationship and they were like, you know, you can't, th- you can't expect that you're going to make a living off this. Like the, the pool of people that pay attention to this kind of music is like about a quarter of a million like tops. And this was, well, I guess this was in like 2000 and I, and I was like, ah, oh, man, you're right. Like, if you can draw 200 people everywhere in the country, you're like, a, you're, you know, you're a popular band. And so I think, yeah, maybe I went to, maybe I went to school. I, my, my parents, I remember my dad saying like, well, what do you like? And I was like, I like music. He's like, well, you should write about it. And I like writing. So I was like, okay, I'll go to school for journalism because I need a backup plan. But I realized that the, having a backup plan was just kind of getting in the way of me, you know, fully immersing myself creatively and trying to you know, become a professional musician. But I guess, like you said, the musical climate at that time, it was a lot different. Like it was a lot, uh, it was a lot hairier. There was no guarantees. And it's funny because, well, it may be worse now, but yeah, (laughs) bands like poison the well, like about a year or two later than that, uh, opened up what bands like you and I were doing to, you know, maybe reach a, a wider audience for the first time. Yeah. Well, it, it definitely felt, I mean, you, you notice this in every musical genre, you, you see the kind of gold rush boom era where, you know, of, ev- of varying levels, you know, it doesn't have to be, you know, when I say gold rush, people automatically assume it's like, oh my gosh, like, you know, platinum records, it's like, no, you know, of, of our level, but yeah. But then it, you know, it, it is a window and it's like, all right, from, you know, 2002 to 2005, that stuff was the hottest thing ever. And then all of a sudden it starts to taper off and then the bands that sounded like that, you know, aren't as cool anymore. And obviously the musical tastes change and then, you know, you're either left to try to cling on to nostalgia or obviously reinvent yourself. It's uh, it's a moving target. <laughs> right. Or or the inevitable diluting of the music where, you know, you get the bands with the haircuts who end up... Uh, you know, getting popular in the hot topic warp tour scene. And then it's like, I don't know, there's all these bands now that like seem to be doing music. That's not wildly dissimilar to where we came from 15 years ago, but they're like playing these huge, uh, huge shows playing this 
diluted, homogenous, like gross version of, of what we cared about a long time ago. And that's me sounding like an old man because I am. Right. But it's fucking <laughs> it's fucking weird the popularity popularity of some of these bands now. Yeah, it, it, I think it. I mean. To me, I look at it and not so much, you know, obviously you're joking about, you know, being the old man, get off my lawn sort of stuff. But I, I always look at it where the it's not the fact that the you know audiences have drastically changed in regards to their tastes, but the you know accessibility is much greater than, you know, it used to be, which in turn, no matter how many, you know, free records a person downloads, you obviously can't replicate the live experience. So right. people will will pipe into that, and then you know shows get bigger, but you know records sell less and whatever. You know, it's, there's that whole dichotomy there that we could talk about that you know <laughs> would be a whole podcast in and of itself. But yeah, um, totally it makes me so sad. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, and so you know, I, I think you mentioned the fact that you were uh, you know you dropped out of school and you focused on you know uh, in pieces as far as trying to you know, make it whatever that may mean, whether that's just, you know, being constantly on tour and that sort of stuff. And I, that's what I did notice from you guys is that you were, um, even though you guys were, you know, fun to hang out with and you were nice individuals you, that there was a, you could tell that there was a fire burning in there in ways that, you know, I, I just maybe didn't really recognize it in other bands. Um, just because there was that, um, level of seriousness that you guys were like, okay, we're, we're doing this for real, whatever that may mean. Um, did you, did you feel that personally? did you kind of notice that in some of your peers or was that just, um, something that you, I guess, didn't notice? Um, I don't know if I was acutely aware of that, but you know, personally, I don't, I don't want to do anything if I don't want to do anything half-assed. Like if I'm going, if it's going to be my life, I want it to be the best version of itself. So yeah, of course. Um, if I, I believed in what I was doing, so I tried to do tried to do the best I could and play the best shows we could. I think that's why I was also hard on myself because I had this idea of what I wanted this creative endeavor to be. And so, yeah, definitely took it seriously. Definitely took it seriously. Uh, well, the one dude in the band I knew was TJ, our drummer, who's also in bare hands with me. I knew that the two of us were serious. I knew that for sure. And, we like to have fun, but like I think the other dudes in the band like were more about hanging out, and we were more about getting the job done. Right, and that's so. Uh, this is actually something I was going to reference a little bit later in our conversation, but I, I think the the piece you wrote on uh, Talk House in regards to you know Bare Hands has existed for over ten years now, and the you know it really struck a chord in me because I think a lot of people are in a creative space, whether they're playing in a band or doing something else. And anytime you're trying to do something collaboratively and you're working with other people, there's always that risk of people falling off of the same page and not being focused on the the common goal. And that's the hardest thing. And I think your piece really illustrated that. And that's what makes it so difficult to, you know, essentially keep a band together. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was one reason why throughout all the ups and downs of bare hands. We knew that we've since day one had the same common goal, the same sort of drive. And that's what's kept us together through the whole thing is that we realized that we, we couldn't do it. If we couldn't do it, if it wasn't the four of us, if, if it was any, if we lost any member of the band, the band would have to break up because the four of us is what makes bare hands work. And it's rare to find people who, are willing to sacrifice 
I'm not trying to sound like we've sacrificed all that much, but yeah, like you sacrifice a lot to be in a band uh, that tours consistently for a decade, you know, lost girlfriends and like having that money relationships are fucked up. You know, it's, it's not for everyone. My back hurts now. <laughs> right. No, it, it, it definitely isn't, especially the idea that uh, I've always explained to people that are curious about tour. It's like this, basically it's a suspended state of animation. You live in the, you live in this world that you know, is exists and it's fun, but then, you know, you've essentially pressed pause on everything else that's going around your, you know, quote unquote normal life. And it's, uh, it's bizarre to keep tapping in and out of that for a long period of time. Yeah. I mean, I always, I, yeah, you said suspended. I, I always refer to towards suspended reality, but it's funny. Like when you tour eight months out of the year that it switches around and that suspended reality is your reality. So the fact that I turn my phone off a lot on tour and I don't check my email because it's like, it's kind of like a vacation in a weird way or just something that I'm fully immersing myself in. So I don't want distractions from the outside world. You realize that, Oh, that actually is your world. So if you want to keep up and be kind of a productive member of society and not a piece of shit boyfriend or friend, then you have to kind of plug back in. And that, and that's hard because for me personally, when I'm on tour, I just want to be, I have tunnel vision. I want to be on tour. I don't want to get texts from people. I just want to do my thing and live in that world, hang out with the bands I'm on tour with, talk, <laughs> talk shop and, and just, you know, try to play good shows. Right. So it's, I don't know. It's weird. It's weird when that switch flips and you're like, your home life is now your, your suspended reality kind of, because I'm always just waiting to leave. Like I was talking to my girlfriend, like I, she's like, you, your toiletry bag with like your toothbrush and toothpaste and stuff. Like, you never unpack that because I'm like, why would I unpack it? I'm just going to leave again soon, you know. Right. And the uh, I always like it too, where um, you know my family and, and and friends have always joked around where you know we when we traveled in in our bands and obviously you still do you experience cities but you experience them you know typically in a four to eight block radius you know the very very rarely do you get to see things like you know touristy stuff or whatever you have to make a concerted effort to it and so even though i may have been to a city five times i'd be like well i can't tell you anything outside of this you know whatever this this crappy venue we're playing or what have you and and then when you get to be an adult and make a choice to you know, take a vacation or take a trip somewhere. It's like, Oh, so this is what the city really looks like. <laughs> yeah. You're like, Oh, well I know that one coffee shop in that sandwich spot. But other than that, yeah, totally. it's, it's people don't, people don't realize that everyone's like, Oh, you get to, you get to sightsee. And I'm like, never, I never get to sightsee. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, you, you really, you, you have, because it takes so much effort to either get everybody on the same page to like, go see this thing. Um, that's just sometimes not even worth it because it's like, Oh my gosh, like I, I gotta get, I have to make sure everybody is properly motivated to go see the Liberty bell or whatever. And it's like, yeah. then, they, then they get there and everybody else in the band is like, that's all. And it's like, well, I, yeah, but it, dude, it's our, it's our history. Well, who cares? And it's like, Oh man, I tried. <laughs> I know we, we never, ever, ever like go off the path and sightsee. But this, this summer we went to Mount Rushmore because it was our first time in the Dakotas. That's the only states we hadn't been to before. Mm-hmm. And I I pushed for it. I was like, guys, I want to take a band photo in front of Mount Rushmore. It's like a weird secret, like, 
uh, something I've been wanting to do. I always get jealous when I see bands taking photos in front of Mount Rushmore for some reason. And they were like, it's an hour and a half out of the way. Come on. And I was like, guys, do this one thing for me. And then we went and everyone was stoked. And I felt really happy about that. And I got my picture. I think that's like the only touristy thing we've ever done. That's amazing. I love it. Well, at least it has a happy ending as opposed to your band members saying, Val, this was such a waste of our time. Why do we drive like, you know, seven hours out of the way or whatever? (laughs) Yeah, no, I was actually, I was very happy that they were so positive about it. Sure. (laughs) Um, You know, kind of going back to your uh, your experience within Pieces, uh, just because at certain points you definitely feel a momentum for a band whether that's you know you playing in front of 150 people in a town that you've never been to and there's people that are singing along that you have no idea who they are um when did you feel like the band had that sort of momentum or when you noticed that things were you know that you were ident- that your band was identifying with people in ways that you originally didn't anticipate well we we started playing shows in Connecticut with like a two song demo tape um and i noticed after like the second show we played in connecticut we were like selling out of the tapes and so the like third show we played there was like people dancing and singing along and i was like oh cool that's cool like weirdo show but then it kept happening and then we so we recorded an ep with kurt from converge um and we just kind of self-released it and i don't know like people started to care in the Northeast. And so then escape artist records came and, and offered to put out a full length. And when we put out the first full length, um, that's when I started to notice, like we could go to other cities outside of the Northeast and there would be a fan base there. We're playing festivals like Hellfest. You're like, Whoa, there's like, there's a bunch of people who know our stuff. So I think 2002, when we released that record is when things started to coalesce and it felt, um, it felt like, people gave a shit for a minute. And that was cool. <laughs> Definitely. Got, got to play with bigger bands and open up bigger shows. And it was cool. Yeah. Well, what would you say? I guess the, um, just because I, I paid so closely attention to your, um, you know, when you released records and obviously how, uh, different sounding you guys were as you progressed as a band. Um, but you know, I guess what was the, uh, the moment that you felt like, whoa, we're on this tour, or this was something that, you know, you had to make business decisions based on the fact that we had to sign to this label and we had to do this. Um, you know, when was that all kind of, uh, cause it, were you, you kind of were you and, and TJ were kind of the business people of in pieces, right? Yeah. Yeah. So but it was not, it was still, I mean, it was still pretty simple, man. Like comparative or compared to what it is now, um, in my life, but yeah, I mean, uh, escape artist records was, that was like when we finally had some sort of infrastructure, had other people helping us. So, I mean, they were, we never had booking agents. I booked a lot of the tours or luckily we had toured with some, a couple of bigger bands. That, so we just jump on the tours, but day to day, it wasn't too, too much, man. Like luckily things were simple. Like we would go on tour, then we would just fuck off at home for a while. So it was, it would be stressful a few weeks leading up to a tour to make sure, you know, all the T's were crossed and I's were dotted, but it I don't know. It didn't, there wasn't a serious business part of it. It would seem pretty relaxed compared to the way my life is now. Right. <laughs> I, I guess if you have a basis of comparison, it's definitely uh, easier to be like, Oh, it didn't really matter. Like we, we could, we, we made these decisions and uh, it was okay. But then now it, the decisions that yeah. we make are, are real world applications. 
Oh yeah. I mean, there's just so much more at stake in my life and there's just so many more people involved in, you know, in my band directly. It was such a small operation before it was just in in pieces. It was just us. And if we didn't want to do, do something, we didn't do it. There was no consequences. If things fell into our lap, we'd be like, cool, let's do that tour. Let's play those shows. Like I remember it being pretty fun and pretty relaxed. It was, yeah, that's cool. It wasn't wasn't too hard. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. Um, and so then as in pieces started to, you know, wind down because, uh, you know, you did go through those member changes that y- you guys obviously struggled with. Um, yeah. the, um, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm obviously familiar with bare hands in regards to the music that you've put out and kind of how you got out there. Um, but when did that start to come into your life and when did you make the move to, uh, to uh, Brooklyn? Because obviously playing in a band in Brooklyn is synonymous. Like you have to do that, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can't you can't move into any North Brooklyn uh, area codes without a guitar. Right, <laughs> right. They're like <laughs> part of the part of the uh, home. Yeah, and part of the uh, application for you know wherever you live is like, uh, can you please attach uh, not only your records that you've released, uh, but uh, you know you need to prove your recording contracts and <laughs> everything else. Yeah, exactly. I heard a couple years ago that that there's more people um, uh, who have ASCAP publishing in the Williamsburg zip code than uh, everywhere else in the country combined or something ridiculous like that. That's not what it is, but it was something, it was so insane, like, or just per capita, how many people are have like a, have ASCAP or BMI around here? It's right. weird. <laughs> That's funny. I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure they're just, the male people are just like, oh, well, here's another four cent check for you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so anyways, yeah, uh, so w- when, did, when did all that transpire? So in pieces, like, yeah, we got, we got another singer, my buddy Dan, and went, we released one last record, and we, the songs were really long and depressing, and we spent way too much time uh, smoking weed and being depressed, and so when we put the record out, it sounded way different than the other one, and uh, had a different singer, so a lot of people didn't latch on to it. So when that didn't go well, that was 2005, TJ was dating a girl in New York. So he just basically said one day, like, I'm going to move to New York now. And we were all like, okay. And so he did that. And there was never any, we never like broke up or anything, but he moved down there and I was dating a girl in Boston and she was like, I'm going to move to New York. And I was like, all right, fuck it. I will too. So then I moved down there. And then right after that, we started bare hands, but there was, there was no like, pieces never broke up we never really talked about it it was just kind of like we'll move to new york and see how it goes but as soon as we moved to new york we like we never played together again right i know that's true there was no uh yeah there was no uh, pomp and circumstance in regards to you guys you know not playing music together under the moniker of in pieces it definitely was like you know lie, lines right history that was the record title correct yep yeah it's so like that came out and then you know you guys played some shows around it but it was like all right cool well that was uh, that was that <laughs> yeah yeah it's we a played like very unceremonious last show in New Jersey, I think. Right. And like, we didn't know it was our last show, but I guess right. it was. <laughs> I, I love that. <laughs> it's like, oh, cool. That was a show. And then you're like, hey, we haven't played a show in two years. I guess that was our last show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so when you, uh, when you made the move up to uh, Brooklyn, was it, uh, was it a, a culture shock for you? Was it a, a relatively easy transition? And what, what did you find yourself doing as far as work was concerned? 
Oh, it was it was actually really, really easy. I mean, growing up in Connecticut, I used to come down to New York for shows all the time. And it's funny, I guess I never thought about living here. I always kind of thought I'd, up, I'd end up in Boston. But, um, you know, I had, I had friends here in TJ and... Uh, my girlfriend at the time knew a bunch of people. So when I, when I made the move in, I kind of had a social infrastructure already built a little bit. So it didn't feel, it didn't feel, uh, like a culture shock or like it wasn't nerve wracking at all. I thought it was pretty fucking awesome actually, especially coming from uh, really boring Connecticut suburbs and to then moving into like cultural, uh, you know, social hotbed that is New York city. It was great. I was like in my twenties and really excited. Started working at this um, clothing company uh, called APC with my roommates, and I just worked there, like in the warehouse, and helping people get really bougie French clothes. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And uh, and then obviously, just because you you stayed in such close, uh, you know, proximity to TJ, it. I presume it was an easy transition to be like, Hey, let's, uh, let's start something new together, whatever that may look like. It's just not going to look like in pieces. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny. Like when, when I moved to New York, I started, I kind of wanted to separate myself from people I've been playing music with. I I mean, one thing about TJ is I've been playing with him off and on for like my whole life. So I know that whenever I need a drummer, I'm just like, TJ, get over here. (laughs) Um, but I think I wanted to play with different people. Um, so I was like kind of talking to some friends and then TJ is the one who approached me about bare hands cause he was working at guitar center in Manhattan and Dylan, our singer came in who we knew from hardcore shows in Connecticut. Um, he came into guitar center and recognized TJ and said, Hey, I just moved to New York too. Um, I need a drummer to play on some demos and he said, you should get Val and have Val play bass. Um, so they asked me to play bass and I was like, Oh, I guess I'm playing with TJ again. I'll play this one day to, to flesh out some demos. And then that was 10 years ago. <laughs> right. <laughs> and then, and then you fell into a band. Um, I did. the, something I find interesting about y- your musical trajectory as well is that, um, you know, I mean, Bare Hands has been, you know, very successful on the, you know, indie circuit and, you know, even uh, brushing up to the mainstream world of things as well. Um, you know, and I would argue, you know, I'm putting words in your mouth maybe, but, you know, In Pieces definitely had uh, some level of success within the punk and hardcore scene. Um, that That's not exactly easy to do, especially when you're talking about two different genres of music where, you know, uh, they're connected, but at the same time, you know, sometimes... Indie, people who are into indie rock, you know, sometimes turn a, turn a nose at uh, what punk and hardcore is, and like, oh yeah, that's the stuff that you're into when you're like 14, but then you grow up, um, right? But the uh, it strikes me that you know you would be since you're at the core of all of these musical acts that. Uh, do you think you're an easy person to work with as far as music is concerned? I, I know it's a tough question because, you know, <laughs> you're asking to judge yourself when you may not have the best perspective on it. But uh, I presume there has to be some sort of thread there where, you know, if you were horrible to deal with, that people you know would probably not want to play in bands with you and you wouldn't have, you know, a friend like TJ <laughs> alongside of you. Right. Um, I've never been asked that before. Um, I... 
I hope so. What I, I mean, I guess what I lack in, in, uh, in, or what, what my personality flaws are, I hope I can make up in, in like musical ability. I mean, I, I would say I'm generally okay to be around, but yeah, like I can be critical. I can be, I can be overbearing and fucking full of anxiety because yeah, when I play music, like I dive, I dive right in. I don't have time for bullshit. So yeah, I mean, I think I generally have a good attitude, but you know, everyone has their moments and everyone has those personality flaws where I don't know. It's, I, I guess for me it's cause I care like, you know, I'll get upset about something or I'll be like, yo, play that shit better because I care. I want, I, I want, if I'm spending my time with these people, I want to be executing the best music I can. So I don't know. Right. No, I mean, I, 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 I could see where that would be something that, you know, may rub certain people the wrong way, but looking past any sort of initial disagreements, people would understand it's like, Oh, well yeah, he's pushing me because he wants us to not sound like crap when we play or whatever, (laughs) you know, there's a, there's a reason behind it. I've had, I've played in, in other bands, like side bands and stuff a couple times and jam with people throughout the, the career of bare hands. And it's always a lot more fun. Cause it's like, Oh, you're drinking beer and hanging out and cracking jokes. But you know what? Like I'm not getting a lot done <laughs> and it's really fun. But I, I, th- as fun as the social aspect is like, you know, I've made this my job cause I treat it like a job. And that's at the end of the day, like, um, for me, the social aspect and like, the fun of playing music is secondary to trying to get across something creatively and play it to the best of your ability. Right. Right. No, that's cool. I like, I like that because there is that notion that because you play in a band and you're creative that, uh, you can never, you know, be serious. You can be serious about the artistic expression, but you can't be serious about, you know, uh, taking viewing this as a job. Uh, you know, there's, yeah. there's that weird, uh, push and pull between, you know, the business of bands and then obviously the art of bands. And, uh, yeah, I I like that, that you are able to live in both worlds and understand that there's an importance for both of them as opposed to, you know, just one or the other. Yeah. I think, I think also moving to New York was like, like the biggest, that was the biggest shocker to me was how serious everybody was. People talk shit on, on Brooklyn and talk about hipster bullshit and blah, blah, blah. But it's like, there's a reason so many bands, who are popular and good come out of here because they give a shit and they try really hard and they, and they do things like practice more than everyone else and network and, you know, like it, treat the, the business side as, as importantly as the creative side. And it's not to say that, I mean, obviously creative being creative is the most important part, but like, you know, there, there's, there's room for both and there, there's, it takes being business savvy to, you know, connect all the dots. And I don't, I don't think that's a bad thing at all. I think it's just another, uh, aspect of, of being a motivated person. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And then as, uh, as bare hands started to, you know, get music together and, and release stuff out in the world. Um, did you, did you find that sort of immediate impact as well, uh, in regards to the same that you experienced with in pieces, or did you feel like it was a, a slower build over time? Um, Bare Hands uh, did really well almost immediately, and then it kind of, and then we kind of like plateaued for a while. Mm-hmm. But it was it was weird. Like within the first few shows, like we were 
we were drawing people and just giving out like a three song like CDR of just pass them out at shows and stuff like that. And then again, within a few months we, we were starting to get like legit offers and opening for bigger bands. The, the guitar player and singer, of my band, they were going to school at Wesleyan uh, university in Connecticut. And so when the band started in the summer, we, we wanted to play one show before they went back to school. And so we played one show like last week of August before they went back and we're like, okay, cool. We played one show. Um, go back to school. This has been fun. And then after that one show and the couple demos that we had made in that month, like we got another show and then got another show. And then just before we knew it, they were driving down from Connecticut like twice a week for us to play shows. And yeah, it started to, to snowball pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. And was that, uh, was that overwhelming for you? Uh, especially like you were saying, because you were focused and you have, both minds about yourself in regards to the business. Um, no, it was exactly what I wanted. Yeah, <laughs> that's cool. So you're able to step into it and not be, um, you know, cause, cause when you get a lot of attention, no matter what you're doing, it's kind of intimidating right away, but you were, you felt like you were, I guess, mature enough to step into that and be comfortable. Yeah. I mean, I've been playing music for years and touring for years at that point and hadn't, and always, you know, wanted recognition and success and the ability to take it to another level and to be able to play with bands that I respected. And so when we were starting to get that, those opportunities, it was really exciting. It was like, it was, it was validating to know that we had come into the city and we were just some stupid kids and we made a demo and like people cared about it. So I was like, fuck yeah, let's run with this. And I'm not talking huge or anything, but it's like, you know, when you can draw a hundred people, like when you've been in a band for a few months, like that feels good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it doesn't, uh, the notion of success is such a huge pool to come from. And it's, it doesn't, it doesn't matter if you feel like you were making some steps in the right direction. That feels like success. It's like, cool. I can't believe a hundred people came to see us on a Tuesday night in, you know, the middle of nowhere in Brooklyn. It's like, that's, that's really exciting. Yeah, no, that's, that's, it was incredibly validating. When did you feel like it took a step above what you were, um, I guess, used to from uh, previous experiences as far as playing music is concerned? You know, like playing, you know, huge venues that you were like, wow, this is, you know, I'm playing in front of, you know, 2,000 people. I never have done this before. Um, I think, well, there was, there was a few things. Like, first of all, what we opened up for Ra Ra Riot at Bowery Ballroom very early on, like a, a year after being a band. And that felt good to play like a sold out room in a, in a venue that I had been to so many times growing up and saw so many shows that I loved. That felt really good. And then about a year and a half into being a band, we went to, or maybe it was two years, we went to the UK for the first time and going to uh, England to play shows was something I had always dreamed about. And I knew that that was definitively like, okay, we're a serious band. If you can, if we can actually get our visas together and, 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 and get over there, then I think we're doing something right. And then we, you know, we sold out our first show in London before we ever sold out our, our first show in New York. So I was like, okay, this is working. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I, lo- I love the notions too of the little, um, the things that loom large in your head where it's like, if we play one show in the UK, like I think we're good. Everything else is like gravy, yeah. gravy at that point. <laughs> yeah. That, that was still to this day, like probably one of the top three best tours I've ever been on or most fun. Right. Right. <laughs> and did, um, 
I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier in regards to, uh, you know, people, and I'm, I'm painting with a very broad brush here, so, you know, don't mind me as I, I generalize. Uh, but obviously, a lot of people within indie rock, you know, like I said, turn up their nose at, at the idea of punk and hardcore, even though many of them have come from that world. Um, did you ever experience any of that where, you know, people knew that you played in a band, like, in pieces and were like, Oh, that's that's cute that you did that. Or was there any sort of was there any attitude towards that? Or did you? No, that's good. No, it's, I feel like you find I've I've toured with so many bands that that have kids who who came up in in hardcore bands and stuff. I think it's a lot more common than you think. I it is. I guess it depends on how you look at it, look back on it. If it's like derogatory or not, like talk shit about the hardcore scene. I think most people. Most people, like, I don't know, look back really fondly on that. There's still kids who come to, to bare hand shows once in a while who have an in pieces shirt on. On the last tour, it happened at two different shows, and I love that. I mean, it makes me so happy. Right. That, first time, that first time we were in London, actually, because in pieces never got to tour uh, the UK, we were playing our last show on the first UK tour, and we're playing this bar. And there's three, I look over and there's three kids standing right in front of me and they're all wearing different in pieces shirts, just like smiling at me. <laughs> and, I was like, and I was like, Whoa, that's so cool. Right. And I talked to them after the show and that was, you know, that was really exciting. That felt validating to know that they came to see us, even though they, ba- they basically said they just wanted to see in pieces, but <laughs> yeah, well, no, that's, that, that's really, really cool. I mean, I do agree that that, uh, that sentiment is much less um, than you know what it used to be. Whatever a couple of years ago, um, <clears throat> I, I do find it so perplexing. Where it's like it, it, the idea that people are born into cool. You know, it's like like you're you're 14 years old and you immediately get a you know Devinder Barnhart CD. It's like no, like everybody starts off liking really basic rudimentary music. You don't dive into the deep end. It's like everybody has come from something. So I, I don't understand why you would be judging someone that played a different style of music at one point. Yeah, no, not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so then so something I found pretty interesting in regards to a lot of the, uh, you know, press that has been, you know, circulated around bare hands is in regards to, uh, like, Oh, you guys party hard. Like, you know, bare hands definitely likes to tear it up and have fun. Um, you know, in, in ways that honestly, I, I don't see most bands of your, um, you know, genre or ecosystem, get kind of put on them um you know i always knew you guys to be like yeah you didn't you you weren't you never uh portrayed yourself as a, a straight edge band or anything of that nature no no. <laughs> no 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 i was always like oh yeah you you guys are down for the weed that's cool man um yeah but uh i just find it interesting that that a lot of people have focused on that aspect and you know you guys are unashamed about it because you've written songs about it too um the you know but there is a there is a dark side based on that fact how have you been able to kind of you know balance your own personal um you, you find that balancing act between all right i like to party and i have fun but i can't cross over to the dark side where i'm like i'm so useless that i i can't you know either play or function as a human being or become addicted or any of those any of those other things so you know how have you kind of walked that line so to speak um it's it's hard. Like I, I, I know that the press is, has latched onto that. And, and honestly we tour, like when we find a band that we go on tour with and, and you know, they like to drink and hang out and stuff. Like, I think that just, you know, word gets around from other bands and stuff too, but I don't know. Like I, I don't see us 
as like partying much harder than other bands. I don't really know why that's become a thing. Maybe because we're kind of candid about talking about things. And I think a lot, a lot of other bands are more reserved, but like, I don't think it's necessarily an ac- accurate portrayal of like who we are as people. One thing is we drink way too much on tour. <laughs> um, as, the, as the tour goes on, you probably drink more. Like what, as soon as, as soon as you start to see the, the end zone, and coming home, it gets harder to do what you do every night. And we've been doing really long tours. We just came off of a seven week tour and that's pretty grueling. So sometimes if, you know, if you're tired, you might drink a little bit. And if you're uh, missing home or if you don't want to play that night, so it, you, it becomes a pattern and it's harder to break as you get older. Like I think everyone in my band at separate times has had, had to like take a look in the mirror when it comes to alcohol and drugs and say, Hey, maybe we need to step back a little bit because you, you know, we are very precious about our band and we don't want, I don't, I don't think, I think all of us are too care too much and are too cognizant of the consequences to ever take it to an extreme level. Like, yeah, we party, but you know, we're, we're responsible people at the end of the day who realize that we have, um, uh, obligations and responsibilities that it would be childish and ridiculous if you fuck that up from, you know, drinking and drugs or whatever. Right. I just, I don't, I don't, I don't think, I don't think that's, we always know how to rein it in. And then when you get home from tour, you like, you know, go back to the gym, drink, you know, drink fruit juice and kale right. and, uh, <laughs> the detox, you know? Right, right. Well, no, that's good because it, you always, you know, as, as people who, uh, you know, know others that, uh, get into certain substances, you always watch them with a cautious eye where it's just like, I, I hope, I hope that doesn't turn out, turn out wrong, you know? And, uh, I'm just glad that you have maintained that level of like, I know how to have fun and I know how to party and I know these, I know, I, I know my limits. Cause I think ultimately that's the biggest thing. You just need to know your limits, you know? Yeah. And it's just, you know, there's too much at stake. There's, there's, there's too much that's been invested in this band that, that, you know, you don't, you don't want to become a cliche. You know, I've seen, I've seen friends bands fall apart from, from drugs and alcohol. And, you know, I don't, I'm not interested in, uh, being part of that. Yeah, I know for sure. That's good. Um, two last things before I, I let you go was the, you know, like you mentioned, as the band reaches a plateau, you, um, you know, you, you have to notice that. And I know that you, because you mentioned the fact that you have a plateau, you notice it yourself. Um, when, when bands hit that moment, it's usually, you know, kind of a make or break thing, whether or not it's, uh, you know, in the middle of a touring cycle and then you start to have a vision for the next record and how that should sound like, um, you know, so as you started to see your popularity kind of level off and it's not this meteoric rise, um, how did you, how did you handle that? Did you, you know, did you find it, I guess, ego bruising in a way, or was it just like, okay, well, this is the playing field we're on now. Um, you know, kind of walk me through that because I think it's something that a lot of people don't consider. It was basically it, like, I can, I can very, very easily pinpoint it. So we started in 2006 in 2012. Um, we had finished the touring cycle from our first record. We had fired our manager who had been with us since the beginning and we kind of didn't have a team. We had our booking agents that was like the only constant people. So we would occasionally play shows, but we had a year where we didn't really do much. I was going through some 
personal things, and so were some of the other guys in the band. So it was the first time in six years where the band kind of took a maybe back seat. We were practicing, but we weren't crazy active, and we weren't really sure what the next move was. So Dylan had this song called Giants, which was like ended up being the single off of the, the next record. And we were like, this is a really good song. We think it could do well, and it would be a shame if people didn't hear it. So we had been compiling a bunch of other songs, and we're like, let's make one more record. If this record doesn't do well, then we'll just break up. And so we made the record, and this is like while still not playing shows for like six months, so like I don't think anyone gave a shit about us. Um, we made the record, pulled pulled you know all the favors we could, and we started shopping it around, and we shopped it around, and it went to a friend of a friend gave it to this management company called Q Prime, which is our current management company, and they work with a lot of big bands, and they decided to take us on, and that changed everything. And we were able to put out the record with them, and then they got assigned to Warner Brothers uh, to put the record out. And then they pushed the song to radio and we had never had a song on radio before. And when that album came out in 20, early 2014 and that single was released, that's like when the plateau was over. And then that started like bare hands Mach two. And then like that started the second, the second version of the band, which has been going pretty well since then. Right. No, that's wild that you can, um, I mean, Everyone always hears about the oh yeah you break through and you start to see your your song appear in the you know the hot Billboard 200 or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. Did was there the noticeable difference? I mean, I, I know I presume attendance wise, but the makeup of your crowd. Uh, did you notice that huge difference of like oh these are people that heard us on the radio and have never yes. heard us before? Yeah, I mean, definitely noticed bigger shows immediately and. Um, yeah, you. We always say that our fan base now is like young girls and like old couples. It's weird. I mean, there's still like the normal indie kids who come to see us and maybe have known about us for for longer. But yeah, it's weird. There's a lot of like teenage girls uh, standing up up front. Like you know, before when we would play, it was usually to maybe a little bit of an older audience. So like you know, people are hanging out at the bar, and then before you play, like people people come up to the front, but it's like people who are into radio and young girls, it's fucking crazy, man. Like you open the doors and they all run to the front of the stage and they stay there the whole show. Right. <laughs> you guys don't have to pee like ever. Right. It's so weird. So that, yeah, that's weird. Just like, I would say four out of five shows, like it's mostly young girls up front and then, then it becomes like a normal crowd. But that's one thing I definitely noticed that's different in the past few years. Yeah. That, that's really interesting. I, I find it too. That I, I really love when people such as yourself and you know TJ and obviously I don't know the rest of the guys in your band, but you know people that have come from the background of you know being bred in the you know DIY scene are able to you know I mean look at that with a, a real eye to be like okay like this is awesome I'm so glad that we're playing in front of these you know these people who um, you know are younger uh, you know could be defined as more impressionable whatever but the conversations that you have with those people and the interactions could be much more valuable because you know at the end of the day you're just going to show them that, like dude i'm just a fucking dork like i am i have yeah. like you're able to relate to them on a human to human level as opposed to i'm i am val the rock star yeah i mean the one interesting thing about radio too is that fundamentally ingrained in it is like 
meet and greets and like acoustic performances and stuff. So like when we, when we go to towns now, like our average day is we pull into town at like 11 or noon and then we like go to the radio station and do like an interview and then do usually an acoustic set of like, you know, three songs. And then and you play it in a room of, of like radio winners. And then after you do like a meet and greet session where like you sign autographs and take pictures with people and you just kind of like hang out. Sometimes like you go, we'll like go bowling with the radio station or whatever, like these weird promo things. But it's cool that you get to hang out with people who give a shit about your music and one-to-one and like get to thank them in person and I don't know, see what their life's about. It's cool. And, and also break it down. The fact that, yeah, we're dorks. We're normal ass dudes who just happen to play music for, you know, it's so weird when people like try to put the rock star thing on it or be like, Oh my God, they were just sitting at the bar. It's like, where the fuck else do you think we're going to sit? You know, <laughs> <laughs> I totally, I, I love that. I just think it's, it's more inherent. Um, you know, n- not, you know, casting stones upon uh, people that haven't existed in this existed in the same scene as you and I have, but there's just that uh, that tangibility of, hey, I, I I played in front of five people, so I know what this is like, as opposed to people who you know they may be working just as hard as our bands did, but they are you know like sitting in their bedroom crafting these perfect songs to be able to present to a label and then get signed and then, you know, have the, the, the all-star trajectory they're looking for. Um, it's work, but on a different scale that, um, you know, I mean, maybe it's smarter because they don't have to eat as much crap as we did, but, (laughs) but I just, I find that the, uh, and the fact that you're able to relate to people uh, as, you know, a regular human being and not be so far removed from whatever it is that they're experiencing. Yeah, that's, I mean, I, I've i played and toured with bands who who aren't as gracious to the, to the audience and maybe have, like, a chip on their shoulder or kind of drank their own Kool-Aid and think they're, you know, a cool rock star guy. And I just, I can't fuck with that. I don't know. It just, it turns me off so much. It's, it's like, dude, we're all coming from the same spot. Maybe it's because of, like, hardcore and everything that there's, like, you're you're ingrained with, like, humble appreciation for people even mildly giving a shit about what you do but right. i don't have yeah I, I don't know yeah the whole the whole and also i mean i'm older i'm almost 36 like i mean i could be these kids some of these kids parents you know what i mean like there's no room for ego or anything it's just you know trying to meet nice people that's all right <laughs> totally totally let's keep let's keep this real simple um yeah <laughs> yeah the last thing i want to hit on was the um you know, the idea that, like you mentioned, it's it's difficult to maintain relationships and, and have that connectivity to, you know, home when you're on the road for such a long period of time. Um, you know, but you, how long have you been in your current relationship? Um, almost four years. Right. And so, you know, it seems like you've, I wouldn't say solved it, but you are at a, at a point now where you're able to maybe, maybe handle that in more mature ways or be able to uh, manage that. Um, you know, so what, what have you kind of noticed you shifting into in order to be, uh, connected? I mean, I, I know you were kind of mentioning it earlier where it's just like engaging with people back at home as far as opening yourself up to text and email and stuff like that. Um, but is there anything else that you've noticed you've changed any patterns in regards to, uh, you know, making sure you have an anchor back at home? Um, I guess just making sure that I am, uh, communicating like I, with my ex-girlfriend, I would, you know, we wouldn't talk for days at a time. Sometimes like 
just because I was getting into tour, but I, I make sure to take time every day to like call my girlfriend and, you know, make sure that like we're on the same page with what's going on in life to make sure that, you know, not too much goes on, um, without, uh, us talking about it or, or me knowing, like sometimes she'll be like, Oh, I didn't tell you about that thing that happened last week. And it was like something really important because we didn't, for whatever reason, we didn't get to talk for a day or two. So I'm like, okay, cool. want to make sure we talk every day so we can like have, even if it's just Skyping or whatever, so I can see her face or FaceTiming so I can see her face. You know what I mean? Just little things about trying to, uh, stay connected when, even if I'm 3000 miles away, that's important to a relationship. Just, just being present. Yeah, absolutely. Because it, yeah, it gets it gets so hard. I mean, when you're younger, you barely have an idea of how to take care of yourself, let alone another human being. But you start, yeah, you start to realize that a lot of the job in you know basically all human interaction is you know just showing up and being present, whatever that may mean. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just just giving a shit and knowing that you know you care about what they say and you care about what's going in their li- going on in their life and and you hope that's reciprocated. Sure. Um, last thing, just because I, I, I always curious about the, the sort of surreal moments, like, you know, when you do get into the, uh, ecosystem that you guys are in now, where it's like, you get thrust into, you know, uh, arguably awkward circumstances, like you mentioned, you know, <laughs> showing up to a radio station and be like, Oh, guess what? You get to throw a pie at bare hands. I mean, that's a, obviously an exaggeration, but, um, not far, not far away, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You're on the, you're on uh, beaver and the bear morning show and you get to, you know, honk the, uh, the horn in order to uh, start the drive time, <laughs> the drive time yeah. recommendations or whatever. Um, exactly. What it was, you know, name to me some sort of surreal circumstances you've been put in where it's just been like, dude, this is so, whether it's like a big show that you've played or, you know, you get to meet this person. You're just like, I can't even believe that we're playing the same show. Um, Cause I just always find those entertaining because like, you know, you are a normal human being and you haven't bought into any rock starness. So um, do you have any things that kind of stick out in your head? Oh yeah, I mean, just dude, playing radio festivals is crazy. You play with like <laughs> bands that like I've played with like fucking Chevelle and like Seven Dust and stuff. Right, like, right, right. My band, my band is like an indie rock band. It doesn't make sense. It'll be like bands that make sense with us who we play with all the time, and it'll be like one weirdo '90s band. And then it's like when you're at catering, you're like, oh, I'm just you know, just eating lunch with the Chevelle guys. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> totally. eating lunch with eat lunch with switch foot. Like that's weird. That's all that stuff's weird. Catering backstage at, at big festivals is, is, is funny. Cause like, it's cool. Cause sometimes you get to see like rappers that you like and whatever, right. or as you grew up listening to, but more often than not, you just, you see like these hilarious people who like, I don't know, I've been making jokes about for a long time and then I get to see them in person. <laughs> it's fucking hilarious. Yeah, uh, that, that's it's really hilarious to be, especially to I mean in this day and age now where there is this mixture of nostalgia where people have to put in like you said those throwback artists where it's like oh wow I guess I guess we're playing with Sugar Ray like that's weird but I guess we'll be playing with them and then obviously yeah. and then the current acts that are currently on radio I just find it so funny too. Yeah, it's 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 a very it's a very weird world right. and I don't you know I don't. I'm not trying to bite the hand that feeds me. It's like definitely given our band uh, a second, a second life and given us a lot of opportunities that we wouldn't have had before, but I'm not going to lie. It's fucking weird. (laughs) Well, I think it's interesting because those, those serve such a purpose to a person who 
music is is not the life for them you know like they're not as nerdly <laughs> involved as we are where it's like we're you know watching all the comings and goings of bands as they're releasing records and you know we have really hot takes on <laughs> what bands records are good and not and then you have your people who just you know want to show up to like two or three shows a year and watch good bands and it's like oh yeah i guess that does suit their purpose in life as well <laughs> yeah it's it's interesting like uh it's also interesting because a lot of these people especially like in the middle of the country like if it's not on the radio whether I'm not sure what the reasoning is, like whether they don't have any need to broaden their musical horizons or they don't know how to do that. But like, I feel like a lot of these people who listen to radio bands, like only listen to radio bands and they don't know of anything else, which is really, really weird. So like when like people come up to us at shows and be like, Oh yeah, we just, we saw you guys and then we saw young, the giant and then we saw walk the moon. And it's like, and I'm like, do you listen to anything else? And they're like, no. Yeah. Why? Why would I? I just that. That's like I've got three. Re- I've got three yeah. records. That's all I need. It's crazy, man. <laughs> right. Totally. Especially for nerd nerd completists like us, who it's like yeah. we got to we got to dive really deep into a band's catalog and know every intimate nook and cranny. And then there's people who are just like, no, that's fine. I I, I own ten CDs and that's cool. Totally. They're like, yeah, I got I downloaded the single. So what else do I need? <laughs> Totally. <laughs> that re- it reminds me of when I was, you know, 11 or 12 years old buying cassette singles and thinking I was like the smartest person in the world being like, dude, why'd you buy a whole record? That's like $17 and I could buy this cassette single for four. <laughs> yeah. Like I got in bloom and a weird B side, which is kind of cool to have a weird B side. I know. It's, or uh, as, as the ever popular uh, remix started to uh, happen with all of the, okay. all of the cassette singles where it's just like, cool. I got Dre day and Dre day remix, which sounds exactly like the same thing, except they just, there's no vocals. Cool. Right. Totally. <laughs> well, Val, thank you so much, dude. This has been, uh, this has been fun. I'm just, uh, I'm glad we could reconnect and uh, yeah, discuss a bunch of stuff that uh, you probably haven't discussed in a while. <laughs> It's true, man. I, I really uh, I really appreciate it. It's been a pleasure, dude. <laughs> so there was Mr. Val Loper, and uh, like I said, just a uh, a super down to earth. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> there's so many uh, opinions that people place on other people in uh, I wouldn't even, you know stature, some sort of notoriety, and um, anytime you realize that they're just human beings doing this whole weird thing together, um, you know, just makes me and i hope you feel uh like you're more a part of this thing because uh after all even though someone might be doing something that you respect uh they currently have the same exact struggles as you do you know it's uh like everybody the joke says where it's like you know i put my uh my pants on uh one leg at a time right even though you know uh other people may have uh you know 700 dollars pairs of jeans that they're putting on as opposed to the you know 20 dollars pair that you may be putting on or myself be putting on but anyways that's uh that's great right that's all i gotta say (laughs) and uh, you should read uh you should google it i I apologize that i'm being so lazy that i'm not putting this in the show notes or anything but uh he had an incredible piece on uh, i want to say the talk house website where he wrote about uh, what it's like to be in a band for 10 years and just uh the trials and tribulations that go on with that you know we kind of alluded that in this conversation that we had but uh yeah just google val loper talk house and it'll pop up it's a very very insightful article so thank you val i appreciate it this was uh, set up directly between him and i and i don't need to thank a publicist for that <laughs> and through the beauty of direct messaging on instagram 
But uh, yeah, the uh, the guest next week, I should tell you that, right? No, I should tell you the fact that you should listen to Lowercase Noises, who provides the music for this particular show in all of the intros and outros and ad music and everything else. He, uh, he knows what he's doing, so please Google him and you'll be able to find him. And if you're more curious about him as an individual, you can dive back in the archives because I did interview him at one point. And uh, the guest next week is Stephen Kubuchi or Kobuchi Kubuchi Kubuchi <laughs> from Wolves at the Gate. It is a band on Tooth and Nail Records, and uh, you know Christian metalcore, as you would kind of expect from that uh, particular label. And uh, we really, I, I this was a, a I wouldn't go so far as to call it a favor for a friend because I was interested in speaking speaking to Stephen. But, um, you know, I, I Wolves of the Gate didn't necessarily pop in my radar a lot of the times and be like, oh, this is a person I want to have on the show. But um, anyways, we had a very, very great conversation. And I know I just sounded like uh, Donald Trump. It was, it was a fantastic conversation. Stupendous. No, I don't think he's used that word, but it was a very good conversation. Let me put it that way. So you'll have that to look forward to next week. And um, yeah, until then, please be safe, everybody. You've been listening to the Jabberjaw Podcast Network, jabberjawmedia.com. Shh.